Welcome to the podcast, On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. You might be wondering why there was no episode last week. The reason is because it was Pride Weekend here in Edinburgh, where I live, and I decided to take the week off. My partner and I took our golden retriever named Colton, which is a prominent hill in the center of Edinburgh, to the parade, and the weather was just perfect, which is not always the case in Edinburgh. I've been to pride parades in a number of cities across the world. Here in Edinburgh, there isn't much in the way of fancy floats as there are in, say, Chicago or New York. Instead, everyone is invited to march in the parade, which means that it is much less like being a spectator and much more like being a participant. I particularly like that aspect. Scottish folk are kindly and welcoming, so there wasn't a hint of any kind of protest. It was just a lovely time for all. As you probably know, Unbecoming is on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. I welcome, as always, your questions, your comments, your suggestions for the podcast. Send those to OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. That's OnBecomingPodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. As I've said before, that invitation is not a polite formality. Instead, if you like what you're listening to the podcast, I'd really love to know what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. Seriously. And that invitation is also for anyone who has suggestions for how the podcast might be better. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, I invite you to support the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. Your support is very important to keeping the podcast going. Just to clarify, I'm a retired professor, and so this podcast has become my main gig. My goal for each week is to deliver an episode that takes a deep dive into specifics and then provides thoughtful analysis. It's a good deal of work, but your words of encouragement have been really appreciated. There are also ongoing costs to putting each episode out. I've invested in high-quality audio equipment so the podcast comes to you as well-produced as possible. I want to say thanks to all of you who've decided to support us. Today's episode turns to the topic of Christian nationalism, which we'll discover is definitely an appropriate subject for the end of Pride Month. You may have heard the term, it's gaining in popularity. But of course you could easily be, or one could easily be, a Christian nationalist without knowing the term or having any inkling that one's beliefs could be identified as such. That's a major point about the kinds of beliefs that go under the name Christian nationalism, namely that many evangelicals in the United States have at least some connections to such beliefs. In an illuminating article in The New Yorker titled, How Christian is Christian Nationalism?, Khalifa Sana quotes a podcast host, Justin Gentry, of the Rev recovery podcast, that's Rev as in recovering and Rev as in reverend, which focuses on people leaving Christian ministry. And Justin Gentry says this, I think that's spitballing. 70% of Christian nationalists don't know they're Christian nationalists. They're just like, this is normal Christianity for the time of Jesus. We've already discussed how evangelicals, and of course they're not alone in this, but Evangelicals are very keen to institute radical innovations and yet somehow tend to think that things have always been this way. In the episode on the series 
evangelicalism considered as a cult. Uh, the, the exact title of that uh, episode was The Cult of Confession. We considered the appearance of this pamphlet back in the 1950s called The Four Spiritual Laws, which postulates that, and I'm quoting from it, just as there are physical laws that govern the physical universe, so there are spiritual laws that govern your relationship to God. Growing up with such talk, it didn't seem all that weird. But of course, as I matured, I came to think that it's a highly questionable idea that there's anything like a spiritual law. Of course, if you know anything about the philosophy of science, you may know that even the idea that there are laws of physics has been strongly questioned itself. But otherwise, it's impossible to prove that such laws, physics laws, exist, though we do have some degree of proof in the fact that these laws seem to have explanatory power. In other words, they explain natural phenomena. In any case, the salvation formula sent out in the pamphlet requires that the person respond by praying a prayer asking Jesus to be their savior. Perhaps someone will argue that the four spiritual laws is a brilliant summation of the core of the gospel. But here's the thing. This way of thinking about what it means to become a Christian is somewhat of an innovation. Put otherwise, most Christians in the past centuries would find this a curious way of putting things and perhaps wouldn't even be able to make much sense of it. Most Christians who are non-evangelical don't think of following Jesus in these terms. To be sure, innovations are not necessarily bad. In fact, one of the things you discover by studying church history is that various pieces of doctrine and practice that constitute Christianity have evolved enormously over the centuries. But evangelicals often see themselves as carrying on the Christian tradition more or less unchanged since the early church. And that's a danger. While the history of Christianity is full of innovations, it's helpful to realize that some Christian ideas or beliefs have been around for two millennia, whereas some have only been around for a few decades. Put in its simplest form, Christian nationalism, at least in the United States, is the belief that the U.S. either is a Christian nation, or it should become a Christian nation, or, more likely, both of those things. To get a better perspective, let's start by considering a recent interview in Rolling Stone magazine with Dr. Bradley Onishi, who's a friend and colleague. He is also the author of a book which has just appeared titled Preparing for War, The Extremist History of Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. The interviewer, Tim Dickinson writes that the religious right is, and I, I'm quoting from him, is acting increasingly as though it's ready for combat. Alas, you shouldn't read that statement as meaning something like Christian nationalists are preparing to provide arguments for their views, which, alas, is rarely the case. Instead, you should see that statement as predicting actual warfare in the name of Christian nationalism, or at least something like that. Put otherwise, the kind of uprising or attack or riot, choose your term, that took place in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021, is not a one-off. It's not an anomaly. Instead, it's a harbinger of things to come. Here's the way Onishi puts it. We now live in a country where this type of political violence is something we have to prepare for. All of that resentment, all of that rage is still there, and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. 
I think Onishi is completely right in saying that the anger exemplified on that day hasn't gone away. If anything, it may be increasing. Of course, how that anger will be channeled is still an open question. Yet Onisha thinks that the U.S. is closer to something like a civil war. In the interview, he references Trump's appearance in court in Miami, noting that there wasn't a huge violent confrontation. Yet he continues by saying, and I'm quoting, there are little fires everywhere that are pointing us toward deep civil unrest and deep distrust in our public sphere. In the interview, he mentions that he has, and now I'm quoting again, more than a dozen instances of people, elected officials, right-wing media figures, megapastors, and some of them have said, we're in a war phase, or it's time for an eye for an eye. He goes on to point out the pervasiveness of Christian nationalism and discourse. And here I'm quoting again. Looking at these quotes alone, it's hard to tell who's speaking. Is it a Republican official? Is it a Fox News host? Is it a pastor? They sound eerily similar, even if some of the buzzwords are different. When asked by the interviewer to define Christian nationalism, Onishi responds as follows. Christian nationalists want Christian people in the United States to be privileged. That ideology, at the extreme, says that only Christians should be citizens, or that the church should have a veto on American law and policy. But if you want to privilege Christians, that means secular people, Muslims, Buddhists, etc., have to accept a second-class position in the country. One question that immediately arises, for me at least, is this. Isn't that more or less what is already the case in the U.S.? For instance, the only federal holiday, in case you're wondering what that is, if you live outside the U.S., that means a holiday in all 50 states. The only federal holiday that's explicitly religious is Christmas. There simply are no other holidays in the U.S. connected to religion. There's no official holiday for Hanukkah or the Eid or any other special days in other religions. However, Nisha thinks that the U.S. is headed much further in this direction. Part of Onisi's case for this point is that when MAGA Republicans start talking about making America great again, the again is a reference to the 1950s. There's an obvious reason for choosing that decade. It was the height of American prosperity and dominance in the world, a time when the contrast between rich and poor was much less than it is today a time when Americans felt united against the threat of communism. For many people, that time is remembered through the lens of something like the Andy Griffith Show, which featured the wholesome and friendly town of Maybury. When I taught at an evangelical college in a suburb of Chicago, many people spoke of the relatively small town in exactly those terms. People would say, oh, it's like living in Maybury. George Marsden author of the now standard history of fundamentalism, titled Fundamentalism and American Culture, points out the following. In the 1940s and 1950s, communism stood not only for atheism, totalitarianism, and a nuclear threat from abroad, but also at least intimated the menace of atheistic secularism promoted by big government at home. During the Cold War, American patriotism was at its peak, and not surprisingly, often took on a Manichaean quality. For listeners, the Manichaeans thought the world 
was divided into very stark good or evil. On the good side of this dichotomy was the American way of life, often associated with family values and a Christian or increasingly Judeo-Christian heritage. So that's what Marsden has to say. But Onishi has a slightly different take on why the 1950s is the model. Here's how he puts it. When you ask a lot of Christian nationalists, and this is where the white part comes in, when is the modern period when they would say things were good? They'll say the 1950s. And you'll ask, the time before the Civil Rights Movement? Before the Civil Rights Act? Before the Voting Rights Act? Before immigration reform? Before the legalization of no-fault divorce all over the land? Before the Loving Case protected interracial marriage in all 50 states? I could go on and on, but their answer is yes. Now, he goes on to clarify what he means here by saying the following. Their nostalgia is for a time when America was the city on a hill. The narrative now is that that city on the hill has been overrun by interlopers and those for whom the country was never intended. So maybe we need to build a wall around the city because it needs protection. Too many people have gotten in and ruined it and eroded the order that we need in the country. Who exactly are these interlopers? Onisha doesn't answer this question exactly in this interview, though his views come through, I think, clearly enough. In harking back to the 1950s, Christian nationalists are wanting to get back to a time in which people of color were still kept in their place. If you're wondering what that means, consider the opinion of a NATO Chicagoan, whose name I won't mention, um, that he shared with me about the secret to Mayor Richard J. Daley, that's the senior mayor who was uh, mayor back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He was successful because he made Chicago known as, quote, the city that works, and also made sure that the blacks were kept in their place. And one can speculate about the extent to which the latter part of that statement explains the first part. So what exactly is going on? Onishi, I think, quite rightly places this discussion within Christian notions of the battle between good and evil, the war between God and Satan that is undeniably a part of the New Testament. Of course, I need to quickly add the caveat that how exactly such a war is taking place or will take place is defined in very different ways by Christians of different denominations. Some would take this kind of talk as highly metaphorical. It's not anything like an actual war. Others, particularly evangelicals, are more inclined to take this war to be real, at least in some sense. To be honest, I've long wondered what in the world it would mean to have a war between Jesus and Satan. Are they using swords and muskets, or tanks and aircraft, or lightsabers and rockets, or just casting spells on one another? It always seemed incredibly vague to me. Even among evangelicals, there are very significant differences as to what all this means. I grew up during the days in which the millions of copies of Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, were being sold. There was talk in many evangelical circles about the rapture and the coming doom to the planet. Now, in order to understand that perspective, we need to distinguish it from the perspective that seems to be animating Christian nationalists. If you know anything about the Left Behind books or the movies, then you'll know 
about a position that theologians term premillennial. This may be a term that is entirely new to you, and feel free to forget it if it's not helpful. A short way of explaining what this view indicates is that it assumes that there is a lot of bad stuff coming our way. Wars, earthquakes, hurricanes, disasters of all kind that would lead to a conflict often termed Armageddon that involves Israel and the Middle East. After all that messiness, then Jesus takes control and it's blissful sailing from then on. Of course, the true Christians would have already been raptured so they escape the war that leads to Jesus' reign. But Christian nationalists are working from a different playbook. They are post-millennialists. Again, this may sound like a new position, but turns out it's a very old one. You may remember that many people came to the American colonies in search of religious freedom. The Puritans are probably the best known of such groups. Their goal was to have a society in which the laws of God were exactly the same as the laws of society. Or to take a different example, the abolitionists of the 1850s and the 1860s were post-millennialists who believed that Jesus would return once society had been redeemed. Post-millennialism was also common among the folks who would eventually come to be known as fundamentalists, as well as common to those in liberal denominations in the 19th century. For instance, the magazine read by people in liberal denominations is titled The Christian Century. If you think about it, that's kind of a weird title for a magazine that's been in print way longer than the evangelical Christianity today. But The Christian Century was founded in 1902, a time in which many Christians, perhaps even most, thought that the world was getting better and better, so much so that they'd soon be ushering in Jesus' kingdom right here on earth. But only 12 years later, of course, the world was plunged into war, World War I. For many postmillennialists, that was the end of such hopeful thinking. Indeed, the 20th century turned out to be a century of horrific genocides and war, not exactly a very Christian century. Thus, Christian nationalists need to be read as post-millennialists. While they're still alarmed by the threat of communism, they're equally worried about the breakdown of the family, feminism, the LGBTQ community, women pastors, and other abominations. Perhaps you've noticed that the terms Communism and socialism are often invoked against any people they take to be a threat. To give an example, the evangelical students I taught had clearly been told that communism and socialism were bad. When I would point out that in the second chapter of the book of Acts, people were sharing their possessions in common, they were often surprised. It hadn't dawned on them that if there were a perfect example of communism or socialism, this would have been it. That communism of the 20th century was atheistic and that Marx himself was an atheist had little to do with the idea of from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, which, if you didn't already know the source, could easily be something Jesus would have said. Of course, a crucial aspect here is that whereas in the Cold War the threat of atheism and communism came from the outside, now many Christian nationalists see the threat as internal to the workings of the U.S.
Which is the problem? What was once outside and separated from the U.S. by vast oceans is now inside. Here it's helpful to go back to Onishi, who writes the following. One of the dangers is that when you talk about a cosmic war between good and evil, your political opponents are not opponents. They're not people who have different ideas about policies. They become agents of the devil. They become demons. And it's really hard to have a democracy where one side sees their political opponent in a mayoral race or in a congressional race as literally sent from Satan, as a demon who hates the country and is trying to destroy it. People who see themselves under immediate threat often act out of fear. But when the battle is with Satan, who is almost literally the embodiment of the anti-Christian force, the stakes are as high as they can go. It's no surprise, then, that evangelicals turned to Trump. When he spoke at a small reform college in Iowa, he maintained that Christianity was literally under siege, but that he was there to help. Specifically, he promised, if I'm there, as in in the White House, you're going to have plenty of power. You're going to have somebody representing you very, very well. Evangelicals responded by voting him into office in 2016. In the 2020 election, at least according to one poll, 84% of evangelicals voted for him. Let's go back to what Onishi says, namely that, and here's the quote, there are little fires everywhere that are pointing us toward deep civil unrest and deep mistrust in our public sphere. The interviewer picks up on that and asks, what do you mean by little fires? Here's Onishi's response, which I'm quoting in full, so you'll get to hear the whole thing. There are extrajudicial acts of violence that are menacing our public square. During the 2022 midterm elections, we had men with AR-15 sitting outside of ballot drop boxes in Arizona. We have people who are disabling, through terrorist acts, power grids in order to stop a drag queen story or to stop a gay brunch. Figures such as Kyle Rittenhouse or Daniel Perry are seen as heroes of those who are willing to do everything they can to put the social order back in place. Last year at Pride in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, by the way, that, that's how it's spelled in French. I, I don't know how they pronounce it there in Idaho. Dozens of Patriot Front members were arrested seconds before they were able to descend upon the Pride event. I interviewed people who were there and believe they were seconds away from unspeakable violence. In Glendale, California, there was a violent eruption between parents who were protesting and counter-protesting LGBTQ curriculum, books, and materials at L.A. schools. There are little fires everywhere that portend the kind of American conflict that we're discussing. Here I think we come to a significant problem. Onishi is able to name a number of different events that, to be sure, wouldn't be exactly comforting to those who are on the other side. Um, by the way, when I say on the other side, I don't necessarily mean liberals, secularists, secularists or communists. For there are many evangelicals that would be alarmed by that point, too. To put that in context, I've mentioned before that I taught for over two years at what is considered to be the premier evangelical institution of higher learning, 
what the New York Times calls routinely the Harvard of Evangelicalism. I left that school before Trump was elected, so I wasn't around to hear the discussions that would have undoubtedly taken place among faculty and staff. Still, I'd be surprised if most faculty voted for Trump, though I'm not in a place to say categorically that they didn't vote for him. My only point is that not all evangelicals did, or currently do, support Trump. It's not insignificant that Mark Galley, who was then the managing editor at Christianity Today, and some I know personally, he was a member of my church and someone that I spoke with often uh, because we worked out at the same gym. He wrote an editorial in which he strongly condemned Trump. But as you can imagine, there was a good deal of backlash against such a view. However, I'm more concerned about this aspect of little fires. Put bluntly, Onishi speaks of little fires, which I think is the correct way to describe them. But Onishi is suggesting that these instances, by the way, I'm sure Onishi has many other examples, are indicative of a coming war. And that's where I wonder how exactly Onishi gets from these little fires to the prospect of a civil war. If Onishi were to suggest that something along the lines of a civil war is possible, my response would be, perhaps, though I'm not convinced that such a thing is likely or even somewhat plausible. I do understand, however, that the rhetoric of war is in the air, but people are much more likely to talk about such a thing as, you know, war or armed conflict than to actually bring it about. At least on the basis of my own reading, which is, should be clear, includes reading Onishi, but a whole lot of other things, I don't think a civil war is likely. People can get very, very angry and lash out in ways that Onishi lists. But I think we need much more evidence to conclude that a civil war is to be expected. And yet, that is the most basic premise of Onishi's book, Preparing for War. The subtitle is The Extremist History of Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. But I do wonder what the adjective extremist actually modifies. If I'm reading the subtitle correctly, I believe that Onishi is talking about the extremist views of Christian nationalists. Bear in mind some of those views, and I will be considering an example a little later in the next podcast, are truly extremist. I have no doubt about that. Yet I wonder if Onishi's view is itself extremist, in the sense that he's providing a truly extreme hermeneutic or interpretation of these little fires. For instance, the biggest of these little fires is the January 6th insurrection, or as I said to you, call it what, what you like, which was truly horrifying. But you may have noticed that the people who participated in that uprising are slowly being brought to justice. I use the word slowly quite deliberately, since I think the U.S. government has very painstakingly worked to make sure it had a strong prosecutable case against each of those who have been charged. And there are more charges against those folks to come. But let's take another example that Onishi mentions. He speaks of attending a protest at Calvary Chapel Church, at which Tony Perkins from the Family Research Council was speaking. Bear in mind, that group is not exactly an ally for the LGBTQ community. 
It's the exact opposite. Yet the point Onishi makes is that there was a group of protesters, about 45 to 50, he says, and the Proud Boys, as well as, and now here I'm quoting, some folks wearing Nazi paraphernalia. Onishi's read is that the Proud Boys were there to, and again I'm quoting, make sure the protesters didn't get out of line. Perhaps that was their function, and that's exactly why they were there. Though it strikes me that another interpretation is possible. They were counter-protesters. But then Onishi focuses on what comes next. On his interpretation, the appropriate thing for the people coming out of the church would have been to say, and now I'm quoting, Hey guys, we love you. We want you to be Christian, but we don't want you to protect us. Please don't come here with your Nazi paraphernalia and your Proud Boy vest. Instead, they waved at the Proud Boys and invited them to lunch. It's what Onishi says next that's key. He says, to me, that is a good example of how these groups are finding themselves on the same side. They are co-belligerents fighting in the same war, and they are finding they have a lot of the same values. So now, why not work together? There's a lot implied by that statement. While I agree with Onishi that the evangelical Christians should have repudiated the Proud Boys, it's not hard to see why they would show kindness to the people who they viewed as standing against their enemies, that is, the other protesters. The old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, comes to mind. But the real question here is, how much can one read into the actions of the Proud Boys? The evangelicals and the Proud Boys would clearly be able to bond over their hatred of the LGBTQ community. They would likely bond over other things, too. However, I'm reluctant to read as much into this situation as Onishi does. Most important, I don't think that things, at least as they stand, are likely to become an actual war. It was Karl von Clausewitz who defined war as the continuation of politics with other means. But one can easily turn this around and say that politics is the continuation of war with other means. If by war Onishi means politics that are warlike, that sounds perfectly correct. And I admit that sounds scary. But I don't see politics in the United States becoming war, at least anytime soon. That's the end of the podcast for today though I'm working on a closely related episode on the town of Moscow, Idaho, where Doug Wilson is a pastor, and as we'll discover, so much more than merely a pastor. Just a reminder, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast, and you'll find that there are various levels of support. And also, please do feel free to drop us a line at onbecomingpodcast.com at gmail.com. That's onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode coming soon. (laughs) 